podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Pad up. It's the Australian Cricket Podcast. And here are your hosts. Welcome to the Australian Cricket Podcast. I'm your host, Menas, And as ever, this show is brought to you by our fantastic Patreon subscribers, This is the podcast all about Australian cricket. This is the post-series loss edition where we try and work out what the hell went wrong in Sri Lanka. And to help me through this troubled time in Australian cricket, I have Gav. Welcome, Gav. Hello. Great to be back, Menas. And Paul. How are you, Paul? Not too bad, Menas. Good to be here. Well, it's been a really tough couple of weeks for Australian cricket. And I just want to start off by apologising to all the listeners out there. I think, firstly, I made one mistake getting Andrew Fernando on the show. Despite being a great guest, I think he got all our hopes up, didn't he, about the state of Sri Lankan cricket. They couldn't bat, they couldn't bowl. Harath wasn't going to take any wickets. And what's happened? I mean, do you reckon he stitched his up on purpose, guys? I think it's the other way around. It probably shows us where our cricket is at at the at the moment, rather than blaming it on him. I mean, how bad are our batsmen, Menace? But what were we thinking, though? We were, we were all predicting 2 3 nil. You know, we were telling everybody Australia was going to turn it around on the subcontinent, and it was an absolute shambles. I mean, we, were, we haven't been in any of the test matches. I think when I looking at the history, uh, the only time Sri Lanka had ever beaten Australia in a test match anywhere was that time when Steve Waugh and Gillespie collided. And then Fernando, so eloquently and so uh, intelligently, Made us made it clear that Sri Lanka had no one, no one any good other than Harath. So it just seemed to me that three nil was um, a logical prediction. I just got the wrong team. And I want a particular shout out to Kiwi Bob, who hasn't been out on the show for a while. He didn't make it any better for me tweeting me after the first test saying Australia were going to back up and you know lift after the first test and get back in the series. I'm supposed to have Kiwi Bob on the show next week, but I'm thinking put a line through that after again he got my hopes up. Well, maybe Zimbabwe, Zimbabwe can beat New Zealand and we're going to have him on. Yeah, that'd be fun. <laughs> now, in this, in this episode of the show, we're going to work through all the issues that we think have brought Australia to its knees on the subcontinent again. We're also going to bring up the commentator critique segment, which has a real international flavour this week. And then after the break, we've got my weekly CPL wrap and also a scathing critique of the BCCI. But let's start off in beautiful Gaul, despite the the not pretty cricket by the Australians in the middle. Beautiful setting, obviously that famous Dutch fort at one end of the ground. Australia lost the test though by a mere 229 runs. After restricting Sri Lanka to 281 in the first innings, he thought we might have a chance. But then our twin batting efforts of 106 and 183 sealed our fate. One statistic that really stands out for me to show what a bad game it was for our batsmen was that David Warner was the top score for the match by an Australian with 42. That was in our second innings. The last time an Australian batsman didn't score a 50 in a test match was all the way back in 1997 at the Oval Test when Phil Tufnell took 11 wickets and bowled us out to win that game for England. So it's been almost 20 years since we've had such a a poor effort in a test match by our batsmen. We lost the series 2-0. We lost the Warren Murray Trophy for the first time. It's only our second ever series loss to Sri Lanka. It's now eight test losses in a row in Asia. It's now 10 tests without a win in Asia. It's our third series loss in a row in Asia. Now I'm going to throw myself out the bloody window after reading all those stats out. Come and help me out, guys. What a what a, a car crash. Look, uh, it was, but Steve was always one for saying that when things are going great, they're probably not going as well as you think, and, and vice versa. When things are going bad, they're probably not going quite as badly as you think. And I think that they're... You've got to acknowledge that it's been a car crash, but looking to the future, I think that we shouldn't throw away some of the things that we've started to do. Getting Murley on as a, a specialist bowling coach was the, was the right idea. Whether he's any good as a coach, I don't know. Maybe he's the wrong person, but it was a step in the right direction. Consciously trying to at least give us a bit more preparation before going over hasn't worked this time, but again, I think it's a step in the right direction. I think Alan Donald seems to have done a good job with, with Mitchell Stark. And again, not to take anything away from things, but if you said, right... Imagine O'Keefe didn't get injured in that first test and imagine that Mendes didn't play the innings of his life. Maybe we would have won that. It would have been one all now and it wouldn't have been the, you know, the end of the world. Now, I'm not saying that, that you know, all these ifs and buts. Yeah, people... but my counter to that is, Paul, a year ago we were in England getting hammered, collapsing in monumental fashion in difficult conditions and a year later nothing has changed. And 
I mean, I think in this test match in Gaul, after the first innings, when Warner was out on that first afternoon, just before stumps, I think then it started to show that Australia, things were going badly and this test match wasn't going to go away because, I mean, we just didn't look comfortable out there. It was more the dismissal of Steve Smith next morning because, look, in middle of the pitch, it was just perfectly fine to bat on. Um, It's just, yeah, a couple of rough patches, but it was a track that Steve Smith, given his record and his reputation of spin bowling, the minute he was dismissed on that second morning, it sort of raised the you know alarm bells that we're really going to struggle in this test match. Going back to what Paul said, I don't know about Murali being a consultant. I mean, this guy's a freak. Do all these great players make great coaches? I, I don't know. I don't think so. I, I reckon you need to get someone. But, but despite all this help, it doesn't done it hasn't well, done anything. No, but Gav I mean, makes a really good point. Murley may be the wrong person, yeah. but it's a step in the right direction to at least get yes. someone like that. He's right. Sometimes you want someone who eked the most out of their talent rather than an absolute prodigy as the coach because they're the ones who can maybe put things in the terms that, that are actually useful. But I think that the, the big problem is our bowling, that our batting is always going to struggle against uh, bowlers that are very, very good in Sri Lankan conditions. We just have no one in return who can um, serve ret- return serve. Well, we're going to get to that. I just want to start off with the timing of the contract extension for Darren Lehman. Now, if you missed it, in the news last week, Darren Lehman's contract has been extended now to 2019 as the Australian head coach, which means he will try and defend the World Cup. He will have one more tilt at a Tour of England to win in England. But I question the timing of extending his contract, A, mid-tour, and the fact that we he doesn't seem to be getting results overseas. He's a good coach. He keeps the guys relaxed. He's good in home conditions when things are going well. But we've struggled in England last year. We're struggling again now. Am I wrong in questioning his coaching? Well, uh, the big uh, I mean, issue for me is when he did that press conference, he, he basically said that, look, my big priority is try to get a win over in England. Now, that's three three years away, Menas. I mean, yes, you're planning that far ahead, but you've got a couple of big challenges coming up in the subcontinent, one which we've already failed at. We had an, another enormous I mean, challenge against India coming up in another six months' time. So his vision seems to be only structured around the ashes. Yes, we judge our cricket on on the Ashes, but there's a lot of other cricket that's been played. There's T20 that we haven't got a great record in. We struggle against the seaming and swinging ball, and clearly against the spinning ball, we have no idea. So that was my big concern. If Darren Lehman came out and said, look, my biggest priority is to ensure that we get know how to play spin bowling, rather than that, he sort of deflected it into a long-term goal, which is the Ashes, which I thought was, I don't know, inappropriate or just showed what his vision was probably lacking. But when I hear him talking about the way Batsmuch had handled these conditions in Sri Lanka, to me he seems quite vague and he also seems to leave a lot of the decision-making processes up to the individual player. Now, I understand that these are international batsmen. You're not going to be telling them how to play a forward defence. But when you're in these challenging circumstances and you have to change your game, I think this is when a coach has to really step up and help his players out. And I I was a really interesting article by Dan Brettig on Cricket info about how before the third day of this test match, the Australian batsmen were in the nets trying to devise new plans to counter the spin. Now, this is halfway through the series. It's halfway through a test match. This sort of stuff shouldn't be slapdash on the morning of test match. We're going to start reverse sweeping today, for example. And I think Darren Lehman has to take the blame for that. I think that the the blame has to still be our, our inadequate preparation. Now, we, we talked about how we've done a little bit better preparing than in the past, but we still played one first-class game in the lead-up to this. And I had a look back at that match where everything looked rosy. Australia got plenty of runs. We absolutely crushed the opposition. In that game, we faced nothing. We faced three spin bowlers only, all of whom were... um, One of them was a batting all-rounder who took five wickets. Another one only bowled four overs. And another one uh, bowled 20 overs. So we faced 54 overs of but Paul, spin. Paul, we're not going to get to Sri Lanka any more than we have any yeah, more time and, and, than we and, did. And the other thing and is... And the challenge of we, international cricket do not allow people to prepare more. Uh, yeah, and we the can touring, keep coming to this excuse. And, we don't play good matches. But in the end, you have to do better than being bowled out for and 100. And teams don't, play, don't roll out the red carpet anymore. In, in the previous series, I understand having those tour matches because the conditions will replicate what they might be in test series. That pitch they had for the tour games was like a green... A green pitch. 
But it's almost coming out to Australia, and you've got the first test at Perth or, or Gabba, and then you're playing at a you know like a slow low wicket uh, at, at Blacktown, a, like up to Black the Kiwis, or Blacktown and, and Bankstown. So yeah. that's and that's going to continue. It happens in England. India will do it. Every international team does it. So how do you overcome that? You can't. Then it's yeah. never going to change. What We're about- always going to lose in the subcontinent. This is a good point that I'm making here. Yeah. The fact is that. <laughs> I'm not saying 10 first-class preparation games. I realise that's not going to happen. But when you're up against, in the, in the test side, their four spinners, first-class averages are 22, 22, 23, and 25. Mate, Joe Burns was in India for two weeks. No, no, let, let me Played finish. spin, and then yeah, he, he exactly. played, played some of the worst dismissals. And then in the, in the tour game, we played part-timers only. We need to at least say to Sri Lanka or someone, we will do better when you come out here. We won't put you on a dodgy pitch at Blacktown. We'll give you something better. We needed to have something in that first tour well, game. It was yeah, interesting but, what Darren Lehman said. Let me just jump in here. But, but Darren, that, Lehman, that, Darren yeah. Lehman did say in the last week that there's been a vast dis- disparity between the way the Aussie batsmen have played in the nets and the way they've played in the test match yeah. and that they've, they've lost their cool in the middle. So going back to Darren Lehman, I just want to ask you guys, if we're dividing up a blame pie where how much do we give to Darren Lehman you know taking away the preparation and the, the players how much does this defeat sit on his plate I, I think it's about percentage 50, I think 50 50 I mean it's still up to the batsman the issue you met you can't teach a guy how to put uh, you know do a front foot defense but if you like last couple of weeks last week especially I've gone and looked at some videos of how the subcontinent batsmen do front foot defense against spinners and you compare that to likes of Steve Smith and David Warner and they're completely off the ball minutes. Their knee is their front knee is not bent. I like I'm no technical expert about all these things, but they teach you. I've spoken to a few subcontinent coaches in the last week to understand what they're doing wrong. Sent them photos of what's and they said clearly our batsmen don't crouch, they don't come over their front leg, which is the secrets they say we teach kids in the subcontinent who are nine, ten, eleven, twelve years old. So clearly there's something technical that's lacking in that game. Now, modern-day coaching is a lot about a player should work on that, stick to his strengths. But clearly, when we're losing, what, 18 test matches, there is some technical deficiency there that needs to be overcome by, you know, a professional or a coach. Or, or uh, I'm not sure what the solution is. But you give Lehman 50% of the blame. How about you, Paul? Uh, 5%. Okay. I think that the fact is that we just don't have the, the players to do it. I mean, we've got Nathan Lyon who averages close to 40 in first-class cricket, who never succeeds in the subcontinent. We had O'Keefe, who got injured, and our replacement spinner was someone that no one had heard of um, until a few weeks before. How can we possibly expect to uh, match their spinners when we've got that? The best coach in the world couldn't help them. Now, I've got a question for you. Now, let's move on from Darren Lehman, and and I want to lay some blame at Cricket Australia's feet here. Now, you talked about the replacement spinner, John Holland. Now, I ask you guys... It was very clear months ago that we were going to be playing two spinners in Sri Lanka and we were going to have to count play in spin conditions. Why then, when we go to Sri Lanka, did we only take two spinners and have no backup spinner if there was an injury? Should the Australian cricket team be in a position where they are sending an SOS to Australia to get a spinner over to play in a test match with no preparation, no net bowling, no time to acclimatise? Cricket Australia has millions of dollars. Surely if you're going to play two spinners, you have a third, you have three spinners on tour. If someone gets injured, you can even have the spinners vying for a spot. For example, if you wanted to make a change for this upcoming test match, you have someone waiting in the wings. Now, for this last test match, John Holland was absolutely dropped in a real sticky situation. First test match, no time to acclimatise. And I think Cricket Australia has to take a a big part of the blame for that. 100% agree on this one. For a start, we shouldn't have been going to Sri Lanka with two spin bowlers anyway. I mean, we played an intra-squad game and Holland wasn't even there before the tour. You know, even if Holland had played in Sri Lanka in that intra squad game, it would be better than nothing just being thrown into the deep end like this. I feel really sorry for him. We should have taken as many spinners as we could over there so that in the early games, whoever impressed would, would get a chance to, to acclimatise and get in the side. Plus, um, as I said before, when our last podcast, Pala Kelly was the wicket that was supposed to be fast. Sri Lanka ended up bowling four spinners throughout the second innings. We go to Gaul, one of the most 
um, spin-friendly wickets in the world, mm. how can we only go in with two specialist um, spinners? We should have brought a third. We should have brought Farwad Ahmed over there and played him in this Test match as a third spinner. My question is: Do we continue to back our spinners? Because let's face it, our pace bowlers have been sensational. Mitch Stark is great. I think Josh Hazlewood once the ball starts reversing is superb. And in subcontinent, thirty-fifth over mark, you're getting the ball to reverse. Now my thing is. Can we just play one spinner and just play Mitch Marsh and play another sort of... Because it's hard to score runs of the same bowlers in subcontinent when the ball starts reversing. England had to say the same thing when they had played over there in the Pakistan, where Jimmy Anderson and, and Stuart Broad, and um, I'm not sure who the third seaman was, they're impossible to score off because they just go bolt stump to stump, pack the onside field. This is how we won the series in 2004, remember? So our... Fast bowlers can tie up the scoring. And then from the other end, just get a spinner like Stephen O'Keefe. Nathan Lyon's an overly attacking spinner. And that way we restrict the runs and that allows us to come into the game. Do you think, though, on these flat wickets, though, after a while we'd just struggle to take take wickets if we just had three quicks and No, I don't. I mean, look at... Um, yeah, they're so flat. Well, if we had... I'm not sure James Pattinson's probably one guy who comes to mind who's, you know, is really quick, he's th- quick through the air, can reverse the ball. Perhaps if we have someone like Pattinson and Stark and Hazelwood and Mitch Marsh... And just try and blast away these well, subcontinental just, it, it, teams. It doesn't have to be a real blast menace. It's just bowling accurately and bowling stump to stump. So why, why wouldn't we sort of get away from... From that, I think we might go back to that in this third test match. I wouldn't be surprised if Lehman and the selected decide to do that. Yeah, I mean, the, that is how we won the series in 2004. And if we had another Mitchell Stark, we'd throw him straight into the yeah. side, obviously. So uh, who's the closest <clears throat> we've got to Stark? Pattinson, probably right guy? or I think that they're already edging towards that. The fact that we only did play two spinners, they're sort of saying, we're going to stick to our strengths on a wicket that another country might play three or four spinners. So I think if we throw in another quick bowler, look... He probably wouldn't have done any worse than Holland did, but I still think that we should be bringing over... It's, it's too late now, but yeah. Farber Ahmed takes wickets. He averages 31. On these turning pitches, I think he'd do something. I think he would have been a better option than, than Holland. But, but then again, a wrist spinner. Wrist spinners aren't very successful over there. Sandekan's bowling well. Well, yeah, because he's you know he's got those rubbery wrists like, and he's hard to pick. Farber Ahmed's a completely different bowler to what Sandekan is. I mean, you, if, you, if you're a wrist spinner in India, in the subcontinent, to be successful, you've got to go bowl quick through the air. You've got to bowl at over 90, 95. Anil Kumble, the greatest you know, subcontinent leg spinner. If you watch Yashir Shah, he bowls close to 90 kilometres an hour. Farber Ahmed's not quite that pace, and you can't just get a bowler to change pace. And, and that's the challenge. This is, we might bring in Nathan Lyon here if you want, and why he struggled. His record in Australia is unparalleled to any finger spinner we've probably seen. No, now, it's not. Well, it's, he's taken the most wickets, but he's not the best. I mean, I mean, who's the okay in the last twenty-five years? Who's the best finger spinner who's come to Australia? Colin Miller to to Australia. Oh, sorry, who's come to Australia? Murley. Well, he's not really a finger spinner. He's more the wrist yeah, spinner. What, so let's cut to the chase. What you're talking about, and Lyon's been talking about this, especially in the last twenty-four hours, is he bowls a lot of top spin on Australian wickets, and he beats the batsman in flight, bounce, and dip. Whereas when you get to the subcontinent. You need side spin. You need underspin, where you come right under the ball and get the ball to to vary its spin and bounce off the wicket. Now, Lyon hasn't been able to adapt to these conditions in this tour, and I, you know, Darren Lehman and Steve Smith both put, called him out in the press conference saying he hasn't bowled well. Was that justified? Considering yes. you think it was because he's never bowled well in these conditions. He bowled um, in the in the in the warm up game. He took none for seventy two off twelve overs. He was ineffective in the first and the second tests. He was ineffective when we played Pakistan in in the UAE last time round. I think he needs to be dropped. But should he be called out though? When you've just been smashed, your batsmen haven't given you any run support. I just think it maybe was a bit unfair, despite. Definitely having some merit to what was said. I, I think calling someone with 200 test wickets over 50 test matches when you've just, like the batsmen, have let you down so much. Call out Joe Burns. Call out Usman Kawaja. Yeah, but as I've mentioned in the past, the one thing I'm going to, you know, sort of back Nathan Lyon about is in all those test matches, 
he's never had to, you know, bowl. There's a lot of emotion in this w- show. When Australia has posted around 450, yeah. I looked at stats. The biggest one was about 370 in Chennai um, back then in 2013. Four years ago, Nathan Lyon was a different bowler. Look, we lost both of the tosses. I'm not blaming uh, Nathan. Uh, you know, the toss can go the other way. And Pakistan put up 500 in both of those digs. Here again, if Australian batsmen bat well and score maybe 300 or give them a considerable amount of lead. Although, clearly at uh, Candy, that didn't happen, where he had his perfect opportunity when we led by 100-odd runs. He really hasn't had a chance. To bet. That's that's not saying the way... that His style of bowling is clearly not suited. He has to have more variation. Could, could he be dropped for the next test? Oh, look, I was being flippant about that. He, could, he won't be dropped, and he shouldn't be dropped. But I agree with Gav. If he got to bowl against the Australian batsman, and if he got to bowl with... Um, a big first innings score. And in both matches, to be fair to him, Australia has batted second, so he hasn't had the opportunity to bowl in the fourth innings. All those things would mitigate the performance to a degree, but I still don't think he's at the class of the of the four Sri Lankan spinners, and that's I think that's still where our number one problem is, that we, we haven't got any weapons in return, and, and other go- than Stark. And going back to the previous point, <clears throat> I was saying that no... Spinner, finger spinner has come across to Australia and succeeded in the last 25, 30 years. So clearly, their style of spin, finger spin bowling doesn't work on our pitches. And it's the same, and Nathan Lyon is successful here, and Nathan Lyon's style doesn't suit those pitches over there. It's the same thing when subcontinent bowlers come over here, because they're not tall and broad and don't hit the, the bat as hard as our bowlers, they don't get the bounce that our bowlers do over here. It's a similar kind of thing. It, it Perhaps it's in the genetics. I mean, Ricky Ponting wrote about how, you know, subcontinent batsmen get to the pitch and then use their wrist to maneuver the ball. Now, to flick your wrist like that, to have those rubbery wrists, that doesn't come natural because at the end of the day... It's years of training. It's years of training. Or, or physically, we're incapable of doing that because we're sort of, you know, our wrists are quite broad and all that stuff. Little things like that make a huge difference. Well, all of this seems to highlight the fact that I think we rely too much on Stephen O'Keefe because he talked about all this for the last year, preparing for this tour in the manner we've talked about, undercut, side spin, getting lower when you let the ball go, and they say that might have contributed to his hamstring injury. So as I said, the selectors got it wrong having O'Keefe there as being all our hopes on him and not having a backup plan. Holland should have been there building up. Now let's. I want to focus on the batsman because there's been a lot of talk about should we concentrate on picking specialist batsmen for these tours that thrive against spin bowling? And we all know that there are, there are some batsmen in Australia that do play spin better than others. Would we, for example, say drop Kawaja or Burns for this tour, despite the fact that they've had a very successful run at Test cricket, and bring in someone that's a specialist in these conditions? But what's classified as a successful batsman? Warner and Smith are our best batsmen. Well, you wouldn't drop them. Well, but I mean... But I'm saying Burns, Kawaja, they've had question marks about the way they play spin coming into the series. But is there a... Despite their centuries over the summer at Test Cricket, you go, all right, we'll bring in Peter Hanscom, who's a great player Is there still a question mark, do you think, Paul, about the way Smith plays spin bowling in those conditions? No, I think Warner and Smith have done really well because I think that these Sri Lankan bowlers in their conditions are very, very hard to play. And I think that Warner and Smith have, um, haven't got massive runs, but they've got decent sort of runs. I don't think they're a problem. I think that I think Menes's point is a, is a good one. I think that if there is someone who is demonstrably going to succeed on turning pitches, then yes, they should be brought in. And once someone has had enough of an opportunity, we're here now, we might as well give Burns and Kawaja, keep on giving them the opportunity. But if, if Burns were to fail in these two um, innings coming up and then come back to Australia, stay in the side, have a bumper summer... There would have to be a question mark as to whether you take him to India, whether you're not you'd replace him with someone like, I don't know, George Bailey or someone. And, and for me, this is a radical shift in thinking because you would never have before in the Australian test team, someone, Burns scored 170 in a series deciding match in New Zealand, perhaps drop three or four games later just because they don't suit those conditions. Should we do that for India next year? Kawaja, as you say, despite if he has a bumper summer, just go, you didn't perform in but the, Sri Lanka. The, how do we judge if a player's good? Now, Burns and Kawaja in that A tour performed quite well. I'm surprised Cameron Bancroft wasn't there um, because he was chosen, of course, for ba- Bangladesh as well. And he actually had the most productive uh, along with Hanscom. So considering on the A tour results... You would pick Burns and you pick Kawaja because they've proved. And they came up against a couple of the uh, bowlers who'd play test cricket for India. So on that evidence, 
clearly the selectors have gone, hang on, they've passed a spin test against some decent quality players. So that's probably... But so- moving forward now, as, as Paul said, next year in India, do we go take a different approach? You wouldn't do it lightly. Um, and I'm not saying that you would definitely do it. But if there was... And you may well bring in someone like Hanscom and he'd go over there and, and uh, fail just as badly. So you'd have to be very... You know, you have to be confident. But I suppose there would come a point at which you'd say... And there is one president, Menas, um, that's Doug Walters, that he was renowned as not being all that good in England and ahead of the 1981 tour... Dougie topped the averages in the Australian summer of 8081, sensationally was dropped for the 81 tour of England. And, um, uh, you know, I just wanted to give a shout out to that. I think it's still still the wrong decision 36 years later. <laughs> but- now let's focus in on the Australian approach to batting. Well, for a start, the batting coach, Stuart Law, who's been hired for just this tour, has been thrown under the bus. He'll never get another Guernsey for Australia after this performance. I, I feel sorry for him in a, in a sense. Uh, Blewett is the full-time batting coach, so he's the one with the responsibility to handle this when he comes back into the position. But even then, Lehman and Smith were very guarded about the way they see the position as batting coach, so that's certainly something that could change. But I think the whole approach has been really mystifying. I talked about reverse sweeps being the latest plan mid-test match. I want to ask you guys, should reverse sweep ever be a a genuine tactic in test cricket as a way of scoring like big runs? I I think so, definitely. I mean, you saw Angelo Matthews pull it out when Sri Lanka were were three for 70 in the first innings. He saw Nathan Lyon. Again, it goes back. He knows Nathan Lyon is not going to get... a a ball that's going to drift away, doesn't have the doostra. Ha- have... Should we be doing it? Should Adam Voges well, be no. Voges, going Voges going, be... I'm just going to start reverse sweeping? No, but if if you see a plan, if you can execute it... Displays muddled thinking, Gav. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, it's still there. I think good players can execute it and play it, but they, know, they should know when to play it. And now, I don't think our batsmen know when to play it. Now, let's go through some of the dismissals in this test match. Joe Burns, in the first over, in the first innings, pulled a rank-long hop to mid-wicket. In the first over of the second innings, he advanced down the pitch and drove the ball straight to short cover. Kawaja just left the ball on the stumps. Voges was out reverse sweeping. It was just overcomplicated, muddled thinking by the Australian batsmen. And I have a theory that when you're the touring side, when you're batting, you have to work a lot harder to get ahead in the game. You're in foreign conditions. I don't think the Australians have been patient enough. They haven't been willing to work really hard for one or two sessions and maybe score 60, 70 runs in a session. Dig in. Um, I'm not saying put every shot away. That's not the way to play either. But you've got to be more patient. And Australia seems to be like this kill or be killed attitude. And it's completely backfired. Yeah, it's a hard one because if they'd been prodding and poking and had been getting out, would be saying the opposite. I think that... I don't mind the aggressive attitude because a 40 on these wickets can sometimes be worth a century. But it's just not measured. That's my point, Paul. I don't mind an aggressive attitude, a positive mindset, but it hasn't been a measured approach. When touring teams that come to Australia do well, they work really hard in the first couple of sessions of the day to wear our bowlers out, get on top, and then they make hay later on in the the matches or the days. And Australia just haven't worked themselves into those positions. And I go right back to the first test when Steve Smith, on that second morning, just charged Harath, irresponsibly got out when the the series and the match was there to be set up. And I just don't think we've knuckled down. Well, it's the same in, in, in this second test match as well. I mean, he, he he was such a vital cog in that second morning and he, he's already hit a fluent drive and he's gone back to Harath. He's misread the length, which is the big problem with the Australian batsmen. They cannot read a spinner's length. And this whole talk about the ball turning and sometimes not turning, like, oh, we've never seen a spin bowler before. Like, spin bowlers have never done this before. This has been going on for years, century. I read a very interesting article the other day, Menas, which, to your point, I think is something that we could adopt, and that is Ashley Mallett, um, former Australian straight breaker. But um, he wrote well saying that the Australians charge down the wicket with the attempt to get the ball on the half volley or even a little bit short of the half volley to loft it. Why not, when you go down the wicket, have the intention of getting the ball on the full, not necessarily trying to hit it for four, get the ball on the full, meet it with a straight bat and place it for two or three. If you're then beaten in flight, then you're most likely then to get it on the half volley. Um, I think that could be a, a middle ground, a measured way of saying we're not going to just prod and prod and prod and prod, but we're also not going to take the Burns approach of trying to um, slaughter every bowler. A little bit like what Voges did in the first test match. Take yeah. the singles went on offer, but advance down 
and hit it for a couple rather than trying to and get it on the full. And and that's what Ricky Pointing sort of alluded to as well. But look, there, there's there's well, I've plenty got a, of issues. I've that, got a stat here to display how bad the second day was of this test match for batsmen. Twenty one wickets fell on the second day. It's the second highest ever in a test in Asia and the eleventh highest overall. The one that I think we all remember is uh, in two thousand and eleven. 23 wickets fell in a day when Australia capitulated there. I would say the most disappointing batsman in this series so far has been Kawaja. I knew you'd say that. And <laughs> and the fact that he got out twice on the second day, it was pretty bad. That's a bad day. I've got out twice in a day before. It's not a good feeling. You can't be angry at him for being too aggressive in the second innings. <laughs> That's for sure. But let's, let's, let's bring up a positive because I think a lot of the listeners now might be feeling pretty bad about Australian cricket. Except for any English uh, but let's listeners talk about. Let's bring up the, the, the thing that the person that started the, this test match really well was Mitchell Stark. To, took a wicket off the first ball of the test match, the first time an Australian's done that for since 1999 in Candy when McGrath did it. And I would love to have seen it actually, but Fox Sports has had a worse test match than the batsmen because they missed the beginning of the test match to show not just the end of the CPL but the celebration. So while Mitchell Stark was taking that first wicket, we were watching the Guyana Amazon Warriors celebrate their win. Now, when you have 500 channels, but five or six sports channels, surely you can work it out so that if one match runs late, you go, oh, the start of the test match is on demand or it's on the next channel. Instead, we missed a history-making moment because of Fox Sports' ineptitude. And I just want to give them a massive serve. That's a that's a huge cross in the Fox Sports box. Yeah, absolutely. In this day and age, with uh, everything you said is true. I also missed the David Warner's dismissal on that first first evening as yeah, well. Yeah, froze. Yeah, there you yeah, go. You guys froze. lost the beginning end. It didn't freeze for me here. A couple of other oddities in the coverage that have been going on. Firstly, I feel sorry for Dil Ruan Pereira being interviewed before the second or third day when he doesn't really speak English. I thought that was a bit of a stitch up, getting him to do an interview in English when he doesn't speak English. And the other thing is, I don't know if you've noticed, but the Cricket Australia app is giving an audio feed of the TV coverage. So you can listen to the TV coverage, but you can't see the pictures, which is quite strange because as I think we've talked about in the commentary critique, there's a big difference between TV commentary when you can see what's happening and radio coverage. So you're listening to the TV coverage, but like sometimes they're just not talking or they go, oh, expect you to have seen what happened. So that's a strange that's uh, weird. feed from Cricket Australia to take. And the other thing about that feed is I don't think they realise when it's on and off because I turned it on the other day by accident like half an hour or an hour before the game started and it was on and they were just like there was just some mic, like they were doing sound checks and pre-recorded interviews and there was all sorts of things. Music was coming through. So it was a little bit strange. That's what I always love when that, because you feel like you could hear something amazing that, you know, uh, one of the commentators saying something, you know, something totally illicit or something like, like Ian Chapel. <laughs> oh, yeah, Ian Chapel <laughs> dropping a clanger in. Uh, the other, the other thing that is happened in this last Test match, and I wonder if opposition uh, broadcasters do it on purpose when the Australians start to get in trouble. They seem to leave the stump mics on when Australia's in trouble, and we heard a few <laughs> clangers from the Australians. Uh, I'm thinking of releasing a new podcast where we just take snippets <laughs> of the stump mic and just make a new show from that. It, it, I found out it tends What did Gary Lyon say to one of the Sri Lankans? Oh, you can't play overseas. I'm like, God, this yeah, is a New South God, Wales. really don't say that. It's a New South Wales podcast. Can we call him Nathan Lyon and not his nickname, Gary Lyon? Gary please? Lyon, yeah. But, but, <laughs> Gary yeah, does go. Yeah, Gary, yeah. Well, I think it tends to happen on the open stadiums uh, generally. And, of course, Gaul's one of them. It happened a lot in New Zealand as, as well. So, But, yeah... You're right. It, it could be the broadcaster saying the Australians are losing. Let's put up the stump mic because we are going to get some spicy material. There's a out lot of, of spicy stuff coming. But it was an unfortunate thing for Nathan Lyon to say. I mean, considering saying, you've just been hammered overseas. Yeah, you can't play overseas. Like, well, gosh, you know. Um, and again, I go on about it, but just shut up, you Aussies. Now, Mitchell Stark took a wicket with the first ball. It's one of the most outstanding Test matches in Asia, Asia by a touring fast bowler. He took five for forty-four in the first innings, six for fifty. He took his 100th test wicket. He became the 37th Aussie to take his 100th wicket. He's the third left-arm Aussie quick behind Mitch Johnson, Alan Davidson and Chuck Reid. Just an amazing match from Stark. (laughs) Just phenomenal. Such pace. Zeros in at the stumps. 
we thought he would be effective in goal. It's just a shame he didn't get the support. Are you going to have a, an apology to Alan Donald, Gav? Well, I mean... The the first test match, it didn't do it. Gore was always going to reverse swing. No, mate, just say sorry. No, oh, no I mean... <laughs> I, I, I think Donald's won this one. Look, <laughs> look, hey, Gore was always going to reverse swing because it's a dry pitch. He no, here we go. He's backtracking <laughs> very quickly. <laughs> I mean... Very quickly. Alan Donald. Uh, he'll, be, he'll be sleeping easy tonight oh, knowing that Gav's pulled no, off. The... I'm still not convinced about Alan Donald. I mean, Mitch Duck, is, he's learned how to reverse <laughs> swing the ball from a long time ago. It doesn't need Alan Donald to do it. Um, but look, I think no doubt he's the world number one bowler at, at this stage by country mile. I, don't, I mean, yes, Jimmy Anderson's great, and but right now he'll be the first bowler picked. Spinner, fast bowler, whatever. He's the best bowler going around. Now, let's have a look at the third test in Colombo starting later on this week. It's in the Sinhalese Sports Ground, which was used as an aerodrome in World War Two, And I think Australia might be dodging a few hand grenades from the Sri Lankan bowlers in this test match. Justin Langer is the highest score by an Australian in this ground of 166 back in 2004. Australia have one of its most famous wins on the subcontinent in 1992 when Shane Warne arrived at international cricket, taking three for 11, backed up by Greg Matthews, four for 76, and Australia won a famous match by 16 runs when we were gone. So we've got some, we've got a good record at the ground, but that hasn't helped in the previous two grounds. Should we hit the panic button for this test match? Should we, should we ax someone and bring in Sean Marshall, Moses Henriques? Well, I don't know. We always seem to do this to Sean Marsh that at the last minute he gets an opportunity that's not really an opportunity. And I'm someone who's always criticised him. I don't think he's really good enough to play Test cricket. I'd, I'd stick with the same with the same batting lineup. I think that rather than bring him in. An interesting thing is that the rest of the world's not panicking. This third Test match is um, the betting odds are up, and <laughs> Australia are once again, albeit narrow, but Australia are favourites to win the, the third Test match, which I find incredible. Um, yeah, I think so. I think we're going to play one spinner and go in with three quicks. Now, whether that means that you take an extra batsman, I'm not sure. But I Does think that mean Lyon would get dropped? No, I, I think Holland has to make way. I think Lyon's got to stay in the team. But I think we got to play this. I mean, Steve Smith. No, I think that's going backwards. I, I, I think Holland should get the experience but, but, over there. But, yeah, but Holland's never going to play another Well, what test. if I keep injured for India next well, year? Then the you, next then, cab well, off well, the you, you, you They'll pick them both. They'll you, pick you them both. you got Zampa and you, you, uh, and you got Farmer Ahmed. Or, yeah, uh, you know, but no, John Holland's. I don't think he's, he's a style of bowler to play in the subcontinent. I think, sadly, his test career could be over. Stupid question, but take it seriously. If your life was on the line... Who would you want playing in this next test match? Holland or Lehman? Holland or Lehman? Lehman with his left arm spin. Um, Holland. I'd, I'd Have pick... you seen Buff? He can barely get around the training pad. I'd prefer Lehman. But, but seriously, Moses Henriques, to me, would be a better option than Sean Marsh, for example, because yep. Henriques has done well in the IPL. He can bowl those little uh, dibbly-dobbly yep. medium paces. But I think, really, if we change anything now, would especially in the top six, it would seem like a panic move. Kawaja deserves to be dropped. Burns probably deserves to be dropped. I, but two test matches ago, they were scoring runs in New Zealand. So it's, it's a tough one. Uh, Moses Hendricks, full credit, uh, he didn't have a bad 2013 series against India. It's just that they played on a Bunsen in the four tests and they decided we've got to bring in Glenn Maxwell and bring in an all-round spinner. So he was dropped. Uh, and Moses Hendricks, surprisingly, has probably toured India more than any other Australian cricketer. Before the 2013 series, he'd already toured there four times. So he's a guy who knows those conditions. Why not play him? Him, Mitch Marsh, leave Hazelwood, leave um, you know, Mitch Stark there, of Drop Kawaja, move Smith up to three, uh, yeah, Voges four, Jackson yeah. Bird. And Marsh. Bring in Jackson Bird? Yeah, I'm not sure. So uh, basically, we've hit the panic button on this podcast. Yeah, we we've, have. We've changed the whole 11. I want Buff in there. <laughs> I think overriding, though, the feeling for me is Australia needs to save face in this test match. With the two at in the India on the horizon. We need to show some progress because it seems like we're going backwards. And I think we may. I mean, if we win the toss and bat, we could end up getting 300 and set the game up. It's, it's still eminently possible that we could come away with this um, only a 2-1 loss. Anyway, I'm predicting 3-0 to Sri Lanka. Anyone else going to predict anything I'm different? predicting rain. No, I think 3-0 as well, yeah, unfortunately. Well, listeners, I hope that little scathing assessment of the Australian tour with Sri Lanka has helped you work through some of the emotions that go through with the dramatic series loss. Now let's move on to the commentator critique segment. I uh, just got a couple of notes before we get into it. Uh, we were talking about Brian Murgatroyd, I think a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. And we weren't sure where he, he was from. We got a message that he's from South Wales. Yep. I think um, I said he's from the southwest of England, so I was close but wrong. 
And I was watching the Sky Sports coverage this week of the Pakistan-England test match, and I think had Bumble, Atherton, Holding, all in the box at once watch. And I found that it was a really sleepy coverage. You know, we talk about Channel 9 jazzing it up. Well, they seem to go the other way. There was just really sort of nice pace to it. They were coming in with their insights when needed, but it wasn't uh, too much. Uh, you know, it's a really different style of coverage. Have you guys been watching that? I've watched a lot of it. It's a cricket purist's coverage, which you can say as a cricket fan, it's much more enjoyable than Channel 9, what they produce. But if it was someone flicking through the channels who was only a, a semi-fan, you see Channel 9 screaming and shouting, it's probably more likely to hold your interest than the intelligent sort of um, restrained way that the Sky Guys go. Now, we have a very much an international flavour of commentators lined up for this week. Let's start off with David Lloyd. I think one of the very good commentators around because he has a real breadth of knowledge. He was a player, an umpire, a coach. Yep. He seems to have a real sort of nose about every facet of the game. Yeah, and he's got that humour about him and his his voice stands out as well. You need something like that. I think he's, yeah, he, he's one of the best going around as well. Yeah, wonderful commentator. I love listening to him. And um, I love that he bothers to commentate on his second favourite sport because he clearly likes football more. He does spin a good yarn. Though. He's one of those commentators that can kind of carry half an hour, that can drive things moving forward, and the other sort of sit along with him. When he was with Michael Holden the other day, I think Mr. Smooth was just there sort of adding comments to what Lloyd was saying, but not really getting into it too much. Uh, so I think Lloyd's one of the best. Now Absolutely. let's move on to Michael Holding, the famous West Indian commentator who spent so many summers in Australia when I was growing up commentating and he was such a scary fast bowler, but such a smooth, gentle commentator, but very opinionated when it comes to West Indies cricket. I love him. I love the fact that he is smooth and relaxed and seems like a really nice guy, but he packs a punch. And if something needs to be said, he yeah. says it. I don't know why West Indies cricket don't have him as their coach or something. He should be he should be involved in their setup. Well, when you get paid a lot more at, at Sky, mate. You, oh, you absolutely, yeah. So, I, mean, I know why he doesn't want to be involved. But, <laughs> but uh, Whispering Death, he, he's terrific. I think Asia's just started to catch up. I think he's just become a little bit old style. It, it was very intriguing when he started off at Sky, but I think he repeats almost the same. We know his opinions, we know his thoughts, and it's the same thing over and over again now. I'm happy with that. Bring it on. And he looks he looks about 50. He's, he looks fantastic. Yeah. He's not an evolving commentator. I agree with Gary. Yeah, but again, very easy to listen to, very smooth. Now we've got the, the Pakistani expert that's been at Sky Sports this summer, the man with one of the great heads of hair in the commentary box, Ramiz Raja. I'm just going to start off by saying that when you see someone like Raja very briefly, like you don't, we don't have to hear him every summer, I don't mind him, but I can imagine if he was here every year, he would drive me mad. I really like him. I like Rami. I mean, his hair is is absolutely fantastic, second only to Javagal Srinath in world cricket. But um, um, I think he's a really cool, interesting guy. I'd, I'd love to have a, a coffee with him one day if he's up for it. He, you, Ramiz, and James Brayshaw, would that be your go-to coffee? <laughs> I think he's in, in Pakistan, he must be the guy who speaks the most fluent English because that's the only reason why he's in there. To be honest, I mean, <laughs> I knew I knew you'd have so I could tell. Oh, Gav. Look, I mean, He's... no, when you listen to him enough during the IPL, I mean, you got to have somebody else, somebody who provides a different insight. He doesn't give. I don't think he knows much about the roots of Pakistan cricket and what's going on in domestic scenes. There's other people out there. You read some of the journalists that they've got and their level of information seems to outdo anything Ramiz has said over the past, you know, three test matches by far. That brings him in line with all the Australian commentators as well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't, I'm a bit between you guys. I don't mind Ramiz, but I think, God, if you're hearing him every year, it would be a bit like Gav. You'd just be like, come on, give me more. Now let's move on to, and this is, I find a really interesting case, and we're shifting here now to the CPL commentary because Mark Howard, the Australian Big Bash commentator, has been commentating in the CPL, and he's one of, in a very small bunch of people that has never played international cricket, I'm not even sure where he's come from. I just know he was... No, no, I'm serious. Just, <laughs> no, no, all of a sudden, he just appeared on the Big Bash. I'm sure <laughs> he exactly was, working, what I was thinking. <laughs> working for Channel 10 in TV. He used, to, he used to do a lot of basketball uh, as well, I think. But, but, but I actually really like his commentary. Yeah. I, I don't know if it would translate to the longer form of the game, but the T20 stuff, he's a very good commentator, and he uses the experts he's with really well. He's always probing the cricket he's with for information. Yeah. I think it goes back, I think Paul was saying it uh, in a couple of weeks or even three weeks ago, how if we have a special 
first broadcaster who has never played cricket but knows a lot about the game, he can actually, as you said, probe the expert and get the most out of him. And it makes great listenership because they're not trying to outdo each other. They're once trying to get the information from the other and that actually makes a lot more interesting and we get a lot more knowledge. Yeah, and Channel 9, if you're listening, there are three podcasters here. We'd be welcome to, we'd be, we'd be more than happy to help you out if you're, if you're interested. <laughs> yeah, so how we get a good rap from the Australian Cricket Podcast and let's end it with probably one of the most ridiculous commentators going around world cricket, another T20 specialist, probably the first T20 specialist commentator, Danny Morrison. Oh, that's massive, massive. (laughs) What do we think of Danny? Because I have find him, when he's commentating normally, he's good. But when he takes on this persona of going crazy in the crowd and when he dresses up as a foreign cricketer or something. He's not a comedian, but he's a good commentator. But knowing Danny personally, Danny actually says, I have to do it. It's almost like a role that he has to pay play in that commentary box so because when he does like he does stuff for abc radio he, i've seen him do uh, when he does test matches he's not that that's what know. i'm saying he's good when he does he's that good, but it's when he amps it up to like danny morrison times 10 that it gets but annoying. he's almost pressurized to do it and you need to sort of have that for the t20 game i'm not sure if that's within himself that brings out or he's been directed to do that or he's the best person to be able to do that. But did, when, when he, didn't he dress up as like an Indian cricketer once and he gets the turban on and he takes on this yeah, persona? But, uh, uh, I mean, it didn't work when Greg Ritchie did it and it doesn't work when Danny Morrison does it. I think a lot of people in India surprisingly enjoyed it. I just find him boring. Um, and I'm sure, I, I don't know him personally, yeah. Gavin. I suspect he's, he's not a boring guy. But... When when all you've got is just sort of like hyping it up, it, it, it wears thin quite quickly. I think you should drop it. But um, yeah, not not terrible, but not one of my favourite commentators. Well, I think that was a pretty good international assortment of commentators. I think we were fairly fair in our assessment this week. Now, if you want to get in touch with the Australian Cricket Podcast and give us your view on the commentators, we're on Gmail, OzCricketPod, AUSCricketPod at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter at OzCricketPod. You can find the show on Facebook as the Australian Cricket Podcast. Uh, thank you very much to Prep Ran and Julie for their excellent reviews on iTunes in the last week. And if you can go on iTunes and leave a review, review it would be much appreciated. It's really good to get that kind of feedback and uh, we really appreciate when we hear from the listeners. Oh, dear me. That is as plumb as you are likely to see ever. Welcome back to the Australian Cricket Podcast. That was Terry Alderman destroying England during the 89 Ashes. And the reason I played that was because I got a great photo uh, on Twitter of Alan Border and Jeff Marsh going down George Street in Sydney after the 89 Ashes with a ticket tape parade. And I thought two things. Firstly, a young Jeff Marsh and Mitch Marsh look quite similar. And secondly, there's certainly not going to be a ticket tape parade for this touring side when they get back from Sri Lanka. Imagine if there was. What would they have to do in the third test to warrant one? That would be amazing. Well, I think they'd be... <laughs> I don't know what they'd have, I, I have think to find be, an alternative to oil. They wouldn't be throwing tape at them. <laughs> Maybe they get kids who bowl spin at some of our batsmen in front of, some of the, under the Harbour Bridge or something like that. Now... Before we end this show, I want to have a chat about the BCCI not supporting the two-tier test idea that was proposed by the ICC earlier this year. And the BCCI is against the two-tier test proposal because they think the smaller countries will lose out and the BCCI wants to take care of them. Isn't that nice of the BCCI? But I would call into question that reasoning. I don't think the BCCI are rejecting the two-tier test idea to look after countries like Sri Lanka and West Indies. I just don't think they want anyone interfering with their the way they schedule cricket. Is that my read? Is that correct? Yeah, I think so. Um, you're pretty much spot on. I mean, the, what the BCCI's argument is that we are sending teams across to Zimbabwe, we are sending teams to Sri Lanka, and because of that, those respective boards are are getting money. Now, just because India come over there and beat them 5-0, does that really mean anything? Does that really develop the game? I don't think they think down those line line of thought. Paul? It's clearly, they're clearly not telling the truth because that that, that altruistic argument is, is just nonsense, nonsensical. I mean, if that were the case, why did they uh, almost bankrupt West Indies cricket a couple of years ago when West Indies cricket on its knees pulled out of the Indian tour? They should have said, well, okay, 
we could try to really hold you for everything here, but we're instead yeah. going to try and work things through. Ultimately, it, f- it fixed up okay. But I think a general rule is if you want to know the wrong, the, what the, the wrong way of doing things is, whatever the BCSE are advocating, you just think the opposite of that. And historically, you'd probably be proven correct. And it's in direct contrast to what the ICC is saying, that if the two-tier test idea goes ahead, that it will be underpinned by a very strong financial model. So the smaller countries will actually end up benefiting from this system because they will develop cricket, as Gab was saying, whereas the BCCI, they literally just want to be able to do what they want, when they want, with no reference to what the ICC directed. I, I, I think the clash is, if Zimbabwe is playing Ireland, it comes back to broadcasting. How much is the broadcaster going to play, pay for that series? I think that's the real concern that we, well, I don't have, but I think the BCCI and the ICC have to sort of overlook that because it, all the thought process is clearly about earning the coin rather than thinking of development of test cricket. Now, how they do that, clearly they're not, you know, sitting down and thinking about those sort of directive. It, it, I, I don't, but as as Paul clearly said, I mean, if BCCI is thinking, it's going to happen. Um, we can't. We, no, I didn't say that. I was saying if BCCI are thinking, it, it's the wrong, the wrong thing, thing to happen. Well, so, so that's yeah, but it's the, going to happen. So where Maybe. are we then? No two tier tests, no test championship, and we're just well, left with what we are now with well, this poor ranking the, system. I hope the test championships aren't playing on spinning wickets, menace. That's <laughs> one thing. How did the ICC manage to get this way where this couldn't be done in house? They've announced it as though it's something that's going to happen, only for the BCCI to make them look silly. Couldn't they have firstly actually consulted with the BCCI and, and found found out their opinion? Yeah, I'm not sure, but it just looks really bad for the future now because it doesn't look like any anything is going to change. And in a couple of years, we'll still be asking about where's the Test Championship, where's the Test... And, and we're test. getting these ridiculous one-sided Test matches with Zimbabwe at the moment, which is, I mean, the seven countries, I think West Indies is showing some promise. That's good. But what's happening to Zimbabwe and all these nations? So. And once again, it highlights the fact that cricket is, is fragmented and that yes. the, the ICC should be able to say to the BCCI, great, we're interested, that's your opinion, but it's not going to happen that way. One board doesn't rule things, but the ICC can't do that. Well, listen, as I guess that's it. Next week, we're gonna, I'm going to do a full wrap-up of the CPL and, and have a look at the Aussies performing over there. Gav, I hear you're heading up to Townsville to see the India A, Australia A games. Yeah, and, and South Africa A are up there as well. So Hopefully I'll, you'll find some good players to spin up there for the Tour of India Yeah, I'm not Australia. sure the pitches are going to be the same, but yeah, it's going to be a good to look at like... Are you just going to be behind the nets, like going through some of the technical well, stuff you've I, been going I've, through I've, I've got a, a pretty good googly minute. I might go try it out to the likes of Hanscom and stuff and see if they actually can read my googly. Look, listen, you can't see Gab, but if you just rocked up by the nets and started bowling, I reckon they'd be. Do you reckon I'm a, I'm a bit, bit look look like Santa Can a bit? Yeah, definitely. A little bit, yeah. yeah. What do bit. you bowl, Gav? Uh, yeah, a bit like that, but not left arm Chinaman, right arm Chi- uh, right arm right, Chinaman, uh, right arm leg spin. So Excellent. There you go. And, Paul, you're not heading anywhere. Thanks for coming in. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) And, listeners, uh, thanks for downloading the show this week. Try and enjoy the third Test match. Uh, Thank you for all the messages from our English supporters after the Test defeat. I really appreciate the support through that troubled time. It always makes you feel a little bit better when you get a a multitude of Twitter (laughs) notifications upon every Australian wicket. Listeners, take care, and we'll be back next week. What a marvellous strike. He's played no better shot than that in the whole of the series. Sports Social Podcast Network.